Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is December the 2nd. The media is still, of course, dominated by two big news stories, the post-election and COVID. But there was one very interesting piece in this morning's New York Times that uh, really resonated with me and perhaps... Uh, in retrospect, will be a bigger story than either COVID or uh, or Biden and Trump. Uh, there was a story today in the Times about how Singapore had approved a lab-grown meat product, a global first. We're on the verge of a great technological breakthrough when it comes, I think, to the reproduction of food and particularly uh, artificial meat. Uh, one person who's done a lot of thinking about our relations with nature um, is uh, the author uh, of a new book, Carl Safina. Many of you will be familiar with him. Uh, he had a, a wonderfully popular TED talk a few years ago about animal minds, animal thinking, how they're like and unlike us. And Carl now has a new book out, really profound, poetic, intriguing new book called Becoming Wild. Uh, Carl, does that piece of news from uh, Singapore? Does it resonate with you? Is it an important uh, uh, moment, perhaps, in our evolving relationship with non-human life? Well, it's, I, I would say, because it's unprecedented, it's an important moment. I think it has its pros and cons. Um, I, I will note with a bit of a smile that I had this idea when I was in college and I was about 20 years old. Instead of growing and killing animals, why don't we just culture their cells in cans or in vats? Uh, there would at least be no cruelty involved. There would be a lot less space needed. Uh, I could see a few things that would be a lot better about doing it that way. On the other hand, it also continues the process of what a friend of mine has called our tidal withdrawal from the world, uh, getting us farther and farther away from the sources of the world itself and of the earth itself. Um, so I, I think there are, I think there are trade-offs. I, I think that the way that animal farming has become, uh, you know, basically an intensive system of, concentration camps where billions of animals live miserably um, and all of them are grown only for the purposes of us killing them, I think this is an advance on that. Yeah, and it's certainly a, an appropriate conversation to have uh, in, 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 in the week after Thanksgiving where we slaughter animals to celebrate nature, it seems. Uh, yes, right, ironically, yes. Well, I think it's beyond irony. I don't know what word you would use. Uh, Carl, your new book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty and Achieve Peace, is like so much of your work, I think, quite metaphysical. You're anything but a, a utilitarian thinker. 
you've talked and written a lot about this relationship with nature which uh, and with other species which has dominated your life. Is there something in this new book that um, that, that you articulate that you haven't articulated in, in your other best-selling books? Yeah, there are um, there are several things actually. Um, and I you know uh, you said that I'm metaphysical. I, I'm an ecologist. I'm interested in the true nature of reality. so I don't, I don't know if that qualifies me to be, metaphysical, but there's a lot about reality and about the living world that we don't think about. Um, yeah, so I'm intrigued I think, that you push back on that. Uh, it's, it's, uh, that itself is um, uh, perhaps a, a subject for another conversation, but whether or not you're a, you're a metaphysician, you're certainly deeply and emotionally interested in nature and other that is true. That is, that is certainly true. So I think there are three things in this book. One is that it, it's, um, it's an exploration about culture in non-human animals and whether or not non-humans have any culture has been debated mostly by people who don't study other animals but study only humans and human culture. Um, in trying to understand what culture is and who does and does not have culture, um, I came to understand a tremendous amount. I think it gave me a tremendous insight into what role, what purpose there is for culture, even in humans, um, what it does in common across all animals that have culture. So uh, for one thing, let me just say first, culture is the, the traditions, the behaviors, the, the practices, the, even the attractions, and in at least humans, the beliefs that flow socially. They're not instinctive. Uh, you have to be instinctively uh, capacitated for them, I guess you could say, but you don't you don't get them by instinct. You get them from social learning. A good example in humans is we we are born with the capacity to learn a language, but what language we learn is entirely dependent on our social context, and that is true for other animals that have culture. We think of culture as a material thing. You know, we think of things like music and uh, fashion and things like that, sports. Um, but what culture is, is it's, it's the understanding of how do we live here. And that is something that can vary from group to group in humans and in non-humans. I think the most important thing that I came to understand is that Culture makes individuals come together and form cultural groups. So individuals form groups that have a group identity, but then the widespread tendency is for those cultural groups to avoid one another, sometimes to be hostile to one another. And I think that this helps explain, at least to me, it really helps explain why we have in humans uh, such cultural frictions, culture wars, and, and why arbitrary differences in culture that depend entirely on where you grew up and, and who taught you what, and you could, be, you could have grown up in another place and be taught a different thing, um, why these arbitrary differences cause such intractable problems of people not being comfortable around people who have other cultural backgrounds. Carl, Carl wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be fair to, fair say, to say that... that 
humans themselves are in disagreement about culture. You have the Hobbesian school who see the state of nature as one where we're deeply solitary and we have the and these are, of course, back in the 17th and 18th century. We have the Rousseauan school of the 18th century suggesting that we are by nature social beasts. So humans themselves and, and human science is in disagreement about whether or not we're social or solitary. Well, I, I think there's no disagreement now that humans are, are utterly social in the way that some other animals are utterly social. Um, a, a human alone is is not really fully a human being. Humans According have always, to who? well, they, they've always lived in social groups. Um, humans don't live scattered solitarily around the place, the way that um, I don't know. There are some animals that are solitary and generally not. They don't live in social groups. I mean that that's. Uh, that's a big difference between certain kinds of animals. Some live in social groups, some don't. Um, humans always have lived in social groups. We evolved in social groups. We evolved from social group living uh, other beings uh, that were our immediate ancestors. And, um, and we, are, we are social animals. What about hermits? Hermits are... Uh, not a form of life for humans that uh, has ever been a viable subset of the human condition. M most hermits are people who just choose a, a very, very solitary life. But, um, you know, before civilization made being a hermit possible, everyone lived in a group of some kind. We usually were groups of small groups of hunter gatherers. Carl, um, you've made a name amongst other things as a, a distinguished writer. Um, your books uh, are many and uh, best-selling, Voyage of the Turtle, uh, the, Turtle the, the View from Lazy Point, Beyond Words, Eye of the Albatross, of course, the new book. Um, I put in, I guess it's a rather facetious remark, why can't animals read? Uh, but whether or not they can or should read, what is having text and books and reading and printing indeed, uh, what impact has that had on humans in terms of their differences with uh, the non-human world? Well, for one thing, um, it's a distancer from the non-human world. We can get a lot of our experience through books. We get a lot of ideas through books instead of directly from the world. I knew somebody who lived in a very traditional Maasai culture and, and he had learned to read. And he said that one thing he did not like about reading is that it seemed to make him, it, it seemed to hurt his memory. He seemed to um, be more forgetful about things before he could read he could remember everything that's that's what he reported anyway um so that's reading the, old, is a, uh, the, the old socrates plato argument about the value of text wh which is what remind me well that, that that socrates was very much in favor of, of of speaking rather than reading because he thought you remembered more ah okay um and uh you know, it also, I think, I think the, our system of writing networks minds, it networks, uh, you know, 
dozens, hundreds, millions of people. Uh, it can get your ideas around. It can also make ideas converge. That I think reduces originality to a certain extent. There's a bit of a trade-off there. It networks us with minds that are no longer with us. We can we can read their thoughts literally. Um, we can leave our thoughts for those in the future. So no, it makes it, us, in a sense, immortal, at least in a social sense. In in a social sense, yes, I think that's a very fair statement. The, the subtitle of your book, um, and I'm not suggesting you change it, Carl, might have been the social life of animals, in particular, the social life of three kinds of animals. Uh, the first is blue whales. You, you, you have the first sperm section. Sperm whales, actually. Uh, sorry? Sperm whales. Uh, excuse me, sperm whales, uh, not blue whales. It's just lots of blue images there. Yes, right. Uh, and you write in this section about sperm whales and family with lessons, of course, for us in terms of how we raise families. What, what do or should sperm whales teach us humans about raising a family? I think one thing is their their devotion to one another. They're very they're very loyal to one another. Family is an enormous aspect of their lives. All uh, they they have a social organization a lot like elephants. They live in female led families. Males are not part of their families. Good That's or bad? Is this something that strengthens families? Do you think in the natural world, just females rather than males? Um, not necessarily, but I think it makes those families a lot more peaceful than they would be if males were an integral part of them and, and the males acted like, um, male humans act and males of many species act. It should, I guess you could say, um, it's noteworthy that in killer whales, males are part of the family that they stay with their mother, though they don't lead families. Male killer whales stay with their mother for their whole life the way that sperm whale females stay with their mother and, and African elephant females stay with their mother. So um, there are a number of social animals where females are the most dominant or females are the leaders. And some of them have males as part of the family, some don't. Sperm whales do not. So Carl, does, does, are sperm whales utilitarian or are they metaphysical? Do they love each other? Is that why they protect each other? Or are they doing it because uh, of, of some sort of Darwinian impulse to protect their own species and their own lives? Well, in a sense, everything is evolved and that's why it exists. Um, and I think that what the, the impulse to stay together uh, involves emotional bonds and affection that we call love. Um, there's a utilitarian reason that we have those bonds and affections, and there's a utilitarian reason that sperm whales do. In the case of the sperm whales, it's built around protection of young ones and the, um, the, basically the fact that other females will babysit your young one while you go to forage 3,000 feet below the surface for an hour at a time, leaving a helpless baby at the surface. So somebody has to know that while you're going, they're going to be taking care of the baby for a while. One lesson from, from sperm whales, Carl, for, 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 for humans, because unfortunately, for better or worse, sperm whales aren't actually watching this. <laughs> yes, right. 
Um, I think the lesson is f family matters. Family, family is worth putting other things aside for. It's interesting that it, I don't know whether that's a conservative message, but it's, uh, it's certainly a, not a, a countercultural message. Um, the, the second area where I found particularly interesting in your book, and it's a wonderful book, by the way, congratulations. Thank it's you. about uh, Scarlett, I'm going to get this one right, Scarlett Macau's um, uh, On Beauty. And of course, here, if, for those people who are just listening, if, you, if you're not able to watch this, I put a, a slide together with some, some Macau's and then an image of of Shakespeare and of Beethoven and of the Mona Lisa and of nature. What do Macau's teach us about beauty, Carl? Well, the interesting thing is that with a lot of birds, the male is the colorful one. And um, with macaws, males and females are both colorful. So first of all, so there's a few things to, to pick apart here. First of all, why is the male usually the colorful one and the female camouflaged? It's because females usually spend a lot of time on nests and they need to be camouflaged. But females choose males that have a look that they like. It's arbitrary and it's aesthetic. And in that sense, it's very, very different mechanism of evolution from natural selection where the overall environment filters individuals either either in or out, um, which would account for camouflage. You get camouflage because the environment filters out the non-camouflaged usually. But in birds, something, and, and many other animals, the birds are an excellent example, something totally different is at work, which is females are choosing brightly colored males because a certain kind of look becomes the look of the species that they are after. And they choose the extreme examples of that look, which results in very bright feathers, very extravagant plumes, a lot of things that are highly impractical. A peacock is a very good example of that. And in the macaws, both sexes are very, very bright, but dozens of other new world parrots, both sexes are green and camouflage. They look like the rainforest. The macaws are quite substantially the biggest of the New World parrots, and they suddenly burst out with color, uh, apparently when they, when they have achieved the size that lets them be too big for most predators, for most hawks and falcons and, uh, and the smaller cats of the rainforest. So it's as if, if you follow the, the thread in the argument that I articulate in the book, that I don't have really the full time to do it justice here, life chooses much of the living beauty that we see around us. It's a result of choice of living things choosing the beautiful. And I think that that is something that people have um, really seldom put in those terms. And what does that tell us, Carl, then, about our, our human obsession with the creation of art in beauty, whether it's the Mona Lisa or the work of Shakespeare or, or, or Beethoven? Well, I, th I think it tells us something very interesting about something that is slightly parallel to those things, because those, those are things that humans create. But if you think of the things that humans see as beautiful, 
A flower is a very good example. There's or no nature. I, I I chose in this in this slide, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, a a dusk, a beautiful dusk. Right, uh, right. Many people will consider beautiful in between the the macaws. Right, right. Well, there's there's no reason for humans to think a flower is any more beautiful than the roots because flowers are signals to pollinators and and the scent of flowers is a signal to pollinators and we are not pollinators we're not descended from any pollinators so the beauty of the world and the capacity for beauty beauty is not a not a property of the object it's not a property of the flower it's a perception that we have of the flower or of sunset and and there's a very strange universality to the perception of beauty in the world so that Pollinators find flowers attractive with good reason, and people find flowers attractive with absolutely no good reason. And I think that that's, if you want to get metaphysical about it, there's something very mystical about why that should be, why there should be a universality to beauty in the world. I told you you were metaphysical thing. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> um, so are you suggesting that there is nothing beyond utility in beauty? I think on the contrary, I'm suggesting that a lot of beauty is absolutely arbitrary and, and is uh, an ornamental. But but, and, but aren't you saying that, that the beauty amongst the macaws is instrumental? That, that it's, it's only it's not instrumental at all, except that they like it that way. They just like it that way. It doesn't do anything else for them, but. What it does for them is it it makes them all appre basically appreciate the way they look and um, and helps them be as very social as they are. They're very social animals. So if there are young men or women or perhaps old men and women out there who just love being beautiful and are some, somewhat ashamed because you're supposed to be con concerned with your own morality or your own inner health, don't worry about that. Carl is saying it's fine uh, for the. I think it's true that there's a lot more vanity in nature than there is morality. Right, which is which is a very uh, counterintuitive point, particularly in 2020. So I like that, Carl. Uh, you know, we we all know the 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 chimps and and the planet of the apes and war and and how and why we are and aren't lot like chimps. In your third section of the book, you write about chimpanzees and the achievement of peace, which of course is also um, uh, a section about war and violence. What do chimps teach us, Carl, about achieving peace? I think what they teach us is that when you live in a group, there are advantages to living in a group, but it makes friction inevitable. And so to gain the advantages and maintain the advantages, you have to have mechanisms to heal the frictions sometimes to avoid the frictions, but since some of them are inevitable, you have to have ways of reconciling, of forgiving and getting on with things. Otherwise, your group will simply fall apart in a chaos of violence. We've had a number of shows, Carl, about war. We had the great Canadian historian, Margaret Macmillan, on the show talking about war, how conflict shaped us. We had a book about the uh, Afghan war, uh, Afghan war called the Wolves, appropriately enough, uh, using the, the natural metaphor of Helmand. Is there something uniquely human, though, about war? No, um, not uniquely human. Chimpanzees um, 
and wolves engage in, well, chimpanzees really engage in what we would call tribal warfare. Whole communities, um, especially led by males, will um, engage in sometimes lethal and often violent hostilities with other communities. Wolves tend to do that with adjacent, what we call packs, which is mostly nuclear, extended nuclear families of wolves. Do you so, see war as a, as a social or an antisocial activity? Well, it's both. It's, it's, it's done socially. Groups do it. Groups decide to do it. That's a social thing. Uh, and it's destructive, which is an antisocial thing. Carl, one of the things I love about your work is it's an attempt to get back to nature, perhaps to our origins. Uh, all your work is focused on doing away with the uniqueness, I guess, of the human condition. Uh, we had um, a show uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, by Kermit Patterson featuring his new book, Fossil Men, which was an, a narrative of our attempt to make sense of our quote unquote ancestors. Uh, mm -hmm. We all know about Lucy, but there was Adi before Lucy, uh, a million years before before right. Lucy. Uh, what is it about us that makes us so intrigued with where we came from? And how does this fit into your general narrative of the world of humans and, and the rest of, of life? Well, I, I, you said that a lot of my work is, is uh, predicated on doing away with human uniqueness. Um, I think it's to tear down some of the mythological stories we've told ourselves about human uniqueness, but we are unique. All, all species have their unique aspects. Uh, being interested in our origins is a unique aspect of the human mind. I don't think it exists in any other animals. Um, our, our kind of language, uh, the, the extremity of our kind of language, there are a few other animals that have a small vocabulary of nouns and one or two adjectives, um, and, and many who communicate very well about a lot of things that are of importance to them, but they don't have the kind of language that we have that lets us discuss things that have happened in the past, talk about things that may be happening or we may want to plan in the future. Um, so some of those things are definitely uniquely human. And um, we, we're interested in trying to understand who we are and where we came from. And I, I'm not sure whether other, any other species are interested in who they are. Uh, they, they, in a way, they are interested in that topic because who they are with defines who they are in a way that is very familiar to human beings. Um, but origins may be a, a uniquely human kind of question and a uniquely human kind of curiosity. Do you think and, our, and our intrigue with, with Adi and Lucy, does that, should that make us more or less humble as a species? Well, I, I do think that the more you understand, uh, the more humility you acquire. And I think that that is um, maybe one of the most healthy things that people can acquire because we, you know, humility is, um, is an understanding of our real place in the world and helps us to cooperate um, and, and helps us to coexist. So um, I, I tell students there are two things that an education gives you. 
One is understanding how little you understand, and the other is understanding where information is that you can seek and get. And so, I think your and I, and I do think your books, if there is a, a sort of a generalization one can make about them, is that they do make us as a species, or they should make us more humble uh, in in the face of nature, other species, and the, the reality of our ability to 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 make our lives and the world a better place. I'm very I'm curious, Carl, where you stand on biotech. We had uh, Eben Kirksey on the show a few weeks ago, her, the, his book, The Mutant Project, about the inside, the global race to genetic, genetically modify humans. CRISPR is the big new tech that's supposedly going to change the 21st century. Right. Is this going to change the way you see the world or the way that we should see the world? Well, I believe that any any human system and any human technology delivers on its values. Unfortunately, we have values that tend to be destructive to the rest of life on Earth and, and tend in many ways to be dehumanizing to, um, to our own species. Um, so I'm not afraid of any particular technology per se, but I am afraid of the implications of how the incentives are, um, are constructed for using it. I mean, most of our incentives have to do with competition, speed, um, winning at the expense of something else and someone else, rather than, um, you know, playing games where everybody wins. And, um, and, and I see, I certainly see some of those worries, let's say, in how those technologies um, are likely to be used. The technology itself is amazing and very powerful. There could be very good, very constructive things that it could be applied for, but the, but the reverse is also true. And as long as the incentives are for uh, competition and destruction and consolidation of power and those kinds of things, um, then, then I, I, I am very wary. In fact, I'm fearful of things that, that help accelerate those trends. It's interesting, actually, that the, the, the CRISPR stuff actually is, is part of the broader narrative of artificial meat, too. So these are big yeah. issues. Perhaps, Carl, you'll come back on the show to discuss them because there's so much else to talk about. We've got to end now. As I said, your new book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace is metaphysical. You may not be metaphysical, but the book is. It's a wonderful read, a moving read, and a profound read. Everyone should read it. Carl, I know you're on Long Island at the moment in these strange right. times. What else should people be reading to make sense of our place in the universe? Well, a really big picture read is Horizon by Barry Lopez. I finished that recently. And um, another book that I, that I really love and often recommend, although I, I read it a couple of years ago, is Mind of the Raven by Bernd Heinrich. Uh, ravens are birds, and they have, the, they have minds that perform about as well as most apes do. And it helps us to understand who we are here in the world with. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.